Hello, kindred spirits, and welcome to Modcast, the podcast of the Ella Montgomery Institute, broadcasting from the beautiful campus of the University of Prince Edward Island. We are so glad you have tuned in. This is Modcast Season 1, Episode 11, and I'm your host, Dr. Brenton Dickinson. In our quest to discover innovative scholarship about the life and works of Lucy Maud Montgomery and to join imaginative readers throughout the world, we welcome to the microphone our special guest, Mary Beth Cavert. Mary Beth Cavert is an independent Montgomery scholar, has an MA in educational administration, and specializes in the personal, historical, and literary context of Montgomery's kinship ties. Her research can be seen in the journals of Ella Montgomery. Uh, she's published chapters in Ella Montgomery's Rainbow Valleys, The Intimate Life of Ella Montgomery, which has been featured a number of times on the Modcast, and the Lucy Mon Montgomery album. She publishes, edits, and writes The Shining Scroll and the Ella Montgomery Literary Society internet and social media accounts. She has finished editing the complete correspondence from Ella Montgomery to George B. Macmillan, Ella Montgomery's Letters to Scotland, and is updating a manuscript about Montgomery's book dedications, Ella Montgomery's Grid Spirits. She is a co-founder of the Friends of the Ella Montgomery Institute, is a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Ella Montgomery Studies, and with Carolyn Strong-Collins, a past guest, was awarded the 2020 Ella Montgomery Institute Legacy Awards. Beth, it's just so nice to have you on the Modcast. Thank you, Brenton. It's uh, actually amazing to be here <laughs> since I'm not actually there, but I feel like I am. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, this is we. So, for those future listeners in a world that has forgotten the digital past, we are not actually side by side in a studio, but <laughs> but connected across time and space uh, through through the magic of our digital world. Yeah, good, excellent. So, uh, we always start this way off. Modcast listeners are avid readers. We like to talk about the books on our bedside tables. And right now, I am uh, just I've just queued up. I'm just reading the blue castle again and this is because i'm prepping for a podcast with the bonnets at dawn sort of like a battle of the women's writers books club i guess a podcast a very famous one now and i'm sort of curious about that uh, the whole bluebeard background behind the book and so we're going to chat a bit about that um and i'm also doing a shakespeare play of, of the month <laughs> And so I have uh, right now, I've just begun The Taming of the Shrew, which is a bit of a cheat because it's one that I enjoy and it's kind of an easy read uh, and I've seen it a few times. Um, what are you reading these days, Beth? Well, Brenton, I applaud your choice of literature. Uh, I'm reading garden catalogs. And, uh, <laughs> well, it is the season for those. It's been those, a long, long winter. Yeah. Yes, we're well in Sconston ice still as this is being yeah, recorded, I, but hopefully we're closer to seed planting when it, right. when it is released. Yeah. So that's my uplifting literature. My uh, what I actually read in the way of books, and I do like books. I I have never read on a digital device, but I have uh, used my library's grab and go where I reserve books. Hmm. And they are invariably um, murder mysteries. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, the Louise Penny, uh, uh, Mickey French, uh, Robert Galbraith, Donna Leone. Um, 
Anthony Horowitz, that kind of stuff, because mm. they're so tidy. They mm. they don't have happy endings, but they have um, endings. And, you know, where... <laughs> they do have endings, yes. That's right. They have cool. endings. And it, not like life, you know. Yes. We, we're on the never-ending... Um, stories here and they're and it's very so, uh, sobering and somber and not that murder mysteries are not sobering and somber but they wrap up yeah. uh, usually in a satisfactory way and so i i find that very satisfying oh, nice. and um so it's I unlike have, uh it's i think of the donald miller great quotation which is uh life is like jazz it never resolves yes. uh, but, but fortunately murder mysteries aren't like jazz right right <laughs> they right. do resolve yeah and so i i do find uh solace in murder and um resolution i guess not murder i don't really find <laughs> solace in murder <laughs> in a resolution yeah. in a resolution resolution that's mm -hmm. that's something important right now um i did uh i have now picked up a, a quarter readers quarterly called slightly foxed which comes out of uh britain it's british mm -hmm. um and it's just simply essays about books mm. uh, and uh, so i find that um interesting because most of the uh, essays are about uh, writers, authors, and books that I've not read. <laughs> so. Yes. Yeah, that's right. It's sort of a shortcut in. I'm always amazed sometimes how good the writing of some of these review essays and literary critical pieces um, can be, right? Like, it's often you find someone writing you know, almost you know, more strongly than the fiction that they're oh, reviewing yeah. in some right. cases. Right. So yeah, right. no, I, I like that. It's a, it's a smart, smart way of, of writing and um, for, for sure, for sure. Yeah. So I'm more of, I like to have the book in my hands, but I am my, when I can't sleep at night, I have uh, one of the ebook readers that has a little bit of a light on it. And so uh -huh. I have, yeah, I have been reading Montgomery's poetry at night because about a third of it's available sort of digitally online. And so that's been, that's been nice. Um, but, but, but again, I still feel, I still feel a little bit of a loss of the tactile nature of the book, <laughs> even though I'm holding something like it's, it's, it, there is a something there, it's there right? Yeah, but it doesn't. And I see you're, you're obviously a book lover uh, for those at home. This is just an audio tape, but for those that are at home, um, Beth seems surrounded by what looked to me like, are these first edition Montgomery books in the background, some of them? Uh, yeah, some of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, there, this shelf behind my shoulder is are mm. the prettiest early mm. and first editions. So I do have them, you know, I have a shelf with first editions and then I took out the prettiest ones and put yes. them on this shelf. You know. <laughs> it's it's so. like your Zoom statement is that to yeah, have all the pretty books behind the, you. Yeah. The prettiest, earliest editions or unique editions. So right. I'm kind of like uh, those that film of Scrooge where he sits there counting his <laughs> gold coins. I sit here with my <laughs> pile of books saying, oh, that's that's a really nice one. I, you know, and I just uh, inventory, inventory whenever I can. Yeah. And is there one that's kind of like... I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's you're always afraid of favorites among your children. But is there one that you think is special, not not just because of sort of fi financial value, but there's a story that you found it or that it's kind of peculiar or unique or something hard to find? Oh, I it's too long a story. But yeah, I have a um, 1909 Anne of Green Gables with its original dust jacket. 
The dust and, jackets. Wow, yeah, and, that's so hard to find. Maybe one is one of five early authentic dust jackets. Uh, it's similar, almost identical to the one in the uh, Archives of Canada that Ron Cohen um, mm -hmm. donated. And I bought the story, short stories, I bought it on eBay. The guy told me it was stolen, so he refunded my money. I said, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> I said, I will uh, look for it because yeah. you're lying. And uh, it turned up on Sotheby's a month later. I contacted Sotheby's. I said, uh, this is not his. Yeah. And they pulled it the last minute on the auction. Lawyers wow. were involved. I got it back. And you got it back. Well, yeah. I mean, because you had a contract with through eBay. You had a purchase contract. Yeah, and I didn't cancel it. He did, and he lied about it. And I got the, um, and he, uh, the seller, uh folded and sent me the emails from the other guy that bought it from him oh interesting you know well, so anyway yeah <laughs> yeah if they're real sellers they want to lose their space on the online uh, market yeah. so in intriguing yeah well that's that's a that's still kind of a cool like sort of there's your back to your murder mystery but in this case like a yeah yeah well and then of course with sotheby's uh putting it up they had it uh appraised so i have a value for it so yeah yeah that's um, right so it's uh, all good. It's just yep. sitting here on my shelf. Of course. That's that's actually kind of often how books work. I'd be afraid to read it myself. So. It's not in a safety deposit box. But, yeah. You know, there it is. But it could be. Wow. Really cool. Cool story. Well, Beth, I'm, I'm, I must admit, I'm, I'm amazed by the output that you've had, the sheer volume of your writing on Montgomery's life and works. Uh, so quite apart from the editorial work of The Shining Scroll, which would be a whole thing, right? Like stuff that's almost unseen because it just appears for people. Uh, you have your own pieces within The Shining Scroll and else, <laughs> elsewhere. And this could be like family history stuff. Uh, you recently did a piece on Montgomery's mother called uh, Clara Woolner McNeil Montgomery. Uh, or it could be like the Woolners in North Rustico. I think that was a couple of years ago. I, I have um, family connections. Uh, so like uh, the cousin's family is, is has Woolners uh, connected. And then on the other side, we have McNeil. Yeah. So I'm from... I'm from New Glasgow, Prince Edward Island. Excellent. And yeah, so I grew up right there. I grew up in right there. Yeah, La Montgomery uh, likes the New Glasgow Valley, but didn't like the little little church, <laughs> so it's the Baptist church. So, uh, as you can find from time to time, and then uh, it would be revivalistic back then, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, you've got uh, stuff on scholarship, uh, artistry. You've got like sometimes you'll dig into a story or you'll talk about artifacts. You had a piece like identifying dust jackets of 1908 and 1909 editions of Anna Green Gables, very specific kind yeah. of a piece. So like what draws you, like, so what brought you into the Montgomery scholarship world um, so that this has been such a focus of your life for the last, uh, at least uh, two or three decades? Yeah. Well, I, I became enamored late in life. I was 40 years old and, um, a few years earlier, I'd had a, a daughter with red hair and a little baby <laughs> with red hair. And uh, people said, you know, you should read Anne of Green Gables. And so eventually I did. And it, it was in the mid 80s. Her, uh, her uh, journals were just beginning to be published. Um, and uh, there was a TV film, which I saw late. I saw it three, three years after it first came out. And I found, a, uh, found that my... Uh, friends in the Twin Cities had 
started a literary society. So I joined that. And in 1992, uh, I went on a tour of PEI and I ended up being able to tour with Carolyn Collins and uh, Christina Erickson and took my daughter with me. And, and that, that got me uh, started with the whole kind of uh, Anne, of Green Anne of Green Gables world, but I went to the first uh, conference in 1994. I've been to every single one, maybe one of the very few people that have been to every single yeah. one. <clears throat> and at that conference, um, there someone had done a paper and, and on friendship and said, um, you know, she maybe wrote about friendship she wanted, but didn't have. And I disagreed with that because <laughs> I felt she wrote about things she knew and friends. So when she wrote so compellingly about friendships, it was because she had experienced that. So I thought, how can I explore that? So I decided then I would um, try to present at the next conference in 1996. And I chose to, um, explore her life through the lens of friendship and I used her book dedications to identify the people I wanted to study. Oh, intriguing. Yes. Yeah. Good. And that will we'll cycle back to actually do that. Right. Hopefully as we get going here. Yeah, you are you're right. So in nineteen ninety two you're doing this tour. I was a father of Confederation in Charlottetown. So I dressed up <laughs> as Premier of uh, Prince Edward Island, uh Colonel Gray at the time or a he may have seen you. Yeah, that's right. Occasionally, I the may have uh, seen you walking around. Yeah, the member from uh, Nova Scotia who became um, the sixth prime minister of Canada. So, like, so I I had those sorts of. It depended what vest I wore. That was my very sophisticated, you know, one or the other. Um, and I could that do, was your immersion, your first immersion. That's right. Yeah, I could do my hair like both those guys. So I think that's how I got the job. And I could grow a beard at age sixteen. I think that was largely the whole qualification <laughs> or something. So. <laughs> So yeah, maybe maybe you saw us do one of our street skits. So um, so so speaking uh, so poking into these things, let's start first with the literary correspondence, and this is something that some readers of Montgomery won't know because the journals have been so carefully edited. They're so uh, volume voluminous. Uh, they're long and and detailed. They're generally well written, but sometimes there's just stuff, right? Right. And, uh, it's such an important resource, but Montgomery's awake and alive and moving in a different kind of way in her letters. And there's a couple of major, there's a handful of major letter collections, but basically the Macmillan and uh, um, the Dear Mr. W as well. So the, the W and the, I think of them as the W and M collections, right. I guess, but not complete uh, necessarily. So tell us about that. How did you get going on the George Boyd Macmillan literary correspondence and, and uh, things and what remains uh, for us uh, in you doing this? Yeah. Uh, actually the uh, Macmillan came about because she's, he's one of her book dedications Mm -hmm. um, you know, Emily of New Moon is dedicated to George Macmillan. And uh, I also, you know, had researched uh, Ephraim Weber, um, not nearly as well as Paul and Hilde uh, Thiessen have in their book, After Green Gables. But um, there were three, actually three pen pals, but only two sets of letters remain. The right. third one was Arthur John Lockhart, Pastor Felix. And so I tracked down his family in... Um, in Maine. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, his letters, I, I tracked the le letters she wrote to him, 
to about 1940 and a person. But this uh, woman lived, I think, well into her 90s. So when her family cleaned out her house, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's where the letters went. Oh, wow. Um, but I talked to the grandchildren of that family and they said, you know, if we ever find them, let me know. And, and, and uh, you know, we'll let you know. Yeah. But uh, so our, uh, Pastor Felix, no letters, but he's the third pen pal who would have been important. Mm. Um, and But we only have the other two because we have their letters. We don't have all of Weber's letters. They're early ones we've been seeing. And that's why Macmillan's letters are really interesting and fascinating because we have early letters before she became famous. So her letters are maybe a little more revealing or candid, or maybe we can just find things that um, we wouldn't expect to find. We can find clues that she was writing at, when she was writing Anne of Green Gables, because yes. she would throw in a quote to him or make a reference to something. So, mm -hmm. um, the, so the Macmillan letters um, were something, I hadn't read the originals until Betsy and Father Bolger asked me in oof, 2014 maybe to do, do all of them. Yeah. They, they gave me their blessing at that time and I said, wow, okay. Um, and I was not able to get up to Ottawa at any time to see the originals, but I did manage to get them all. Um, and so I've been transcribing them and um, for the last few years from time to time, getting some help from Jenny Litster and Betsy and Carolyn Collins, just on the handwriting and some references. Um, and then all of a sudden these postcards appear. Yes. And I thought, yeah. you know, this is why my, my procrastination and my very uh, slow, <laughs> slow uh, progress is um, that's why it happens, because yeah. there's something that's going to pop up and you should just wait for it. Well, could you take could you actually back up back up for the listeners, because um, we're going to we'll point we want to point them forward to the right resource. Tell us the postcard story, the McGill postcard story. Um, Betsy or. Uh, George Boyd McMillan never married, but he had a, a niece and a nephew who he uh, gave all of his Montgomery material to. And they actually, neither one of them married, but the niece has grandchildren. Okay. And her grandchildren found uh, uh, a Mount. So Molly Gillen tracked down these letters, acquired them. Uh, Archives Canada bottom. We have the letters, the books he she sent to him were um, sold to a bookstore in Glasgow, and and uh, University of Guelph bought those. Okay. So those are in uh, in Guelph. Um, so we have letters in Ottawa, Macmillan's books that she sent him in uh, Guelph. And then these postcards were still sitting there in Scotland and they're cleaning out their mother's material. And they found this album of postcards that George Boyd Macmillan had put into a, put postcards into an album. So they contacted um, Kate McDonald and she contacted Betsy and then Betsy called me. Yes. And then they got 
And then the Ella Montgomery Institute bought the postcards. So we have kind of three different areas where the Macmillan things are located. Mm. Um, and, uh, but they're all so accessible now. Yes. Will be. Well, well not, not at the moment that we're speaking, they're actually, no. some of them are, so, but, and this is actually a great kind of, um, public moment in Canada when it comes to Montgomery archives, you really have those right. sort of three spaces, Ottawa, sort of national stuff, the University of Guelph, and then the University of Prince Edward Island right. with the Ella Montgomery Institute. So, so right. the, the, and, and as it turns out, this archival folder then moves across all three. Is that right? Is, right. Yeah, right. That's, that's right. pretty cool. What a great, great find. And you've actually uh, prepared and published some uh, for uh, readers on the Ellen Montgomery Studies Journal website. Right, right. Yeah. What did you do there? Tell us about how you curated that and, and what th that people can find when they arrive Well, there. Kate Scarth was kind enough to allow me to um, throw a bunch of stuff at them and their editors, and then they polished, helped me polish it up. But I'm really actually very pleased with both of them. Um, one of them is just really a, a transcription of all the postcards. And I tried to put them in order. I messed up the dates of, of a few of them, but I tried to put the postcards in order and, and in context because I had stuck them in order with all the letters I had transcribed. And they make sense when you put them in order with letters too. Sometimes standalone, they don't have any, any meaning, but once in a while, the letters uh, illuminate a little bit more. Um, anyway, so there's one uh, paper about the postcards just the postcards and the other one was um a paper i put together about uh, to go with the um collection of the co last conference or conference on reading on reading ella montgomery and reading and i wrote a bit about macmillan's bio his biography but about um how important reading was between the two of them as as readers discussing books, what they read. <clears throat> and then really what I hadn't really discussed before was how the books that he gave to her influenced her or gave her comfort. And um, at the time I was uh, reading along with the Ellen Montgomery Readathon that Andrea McKenzie and Ben LeFay were doing. And they were, um, uh, doing Jane of Lantern Hill, and it just occurred to me, you know, all these books he's giving to her are domestic fiction. Mm -hmm. It was comforting to her. It was, um, and why wouldn't she want to try to replicate that kind of a book, which I felt like she had tried to do in Jane of Lantern Hill. Yeah. Um, anyway. With her own she has her own little twists, of course, as as she does, right. Right, where, um, yeah, she, Jane ends up being quite a strong sort of household manager for right, right. Know, for having no background as a young child. So intriguing kind of things that she's lured to and how the right. shore draws and the hills and things. Yeah. And yeah, it shows what she loved and why she would have loved these writers um, and the mm -hmm. books that George Macmillan was sending to her and how he chose those. I thought, well, how, why would he be so intuitive? He was, he was very intuitive with her. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, but he, he paid attention to the ads in the book, in the paper, you know, at Christmas, you know, who, yeah, 
and he would read the book ads. Oh, here's your domestic fiction you must have, you know, and yeah, for your lady yeah. friends. So, yeah. I, <laughs> well, no, it's I mean, and it's beautiful. So it'll be in the show notes. People can make a link, or you can just Google the Journal of Montgomery Studies and right. Mill and Pork Postcards, and it gets you right there. It's lots of good stuff there. Lots I have of, to say, lots, lots of, great stuff. of good stuff. Yeah, and it's it's so it's just super cool. Like in 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 being able to see like old postcards for one some of them are just strange and weird like of the few <laughs> pictures that are there and you're right some of the con- content doesn't always kind of ring but when you add it all together when you're going to put it in this linear form li- uh, linear linear form then it, it does begin to shape that because the postcards were meant to be quick touches right the right. very physical or or person yeah. or just I, thought just a thought right I, before I, I i called them like slow motion texting yeah, um, you know. it would be slow motion, but a lot, a lot quicker Two to move postcard you know. than than now, yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah. it's yeah, and I do actually with my nephew. I send him every couple of months. I send him a postcard. I've got a whole box of old, strange postcards that I I send out, and so <laughs> just it's, they got to go somewhere. They got to go. Well, yeah, I mean, for the for the cost of a stamp uh, in a few minutes of time, <laughs> it's been a fun. It's a fun sort of project, and and they're just goofy and things like that. The and some of them aren't even terribly meaningful, right? Like it's not, you know, there's a picture there of uh, say Rustico, which is me- more meaningful, a connection point, but then there'll be another one that has, as far as I can tell, is just something she picked up along the way. So, yeah. I mean, who knows where she got some of these, my favorites, my favorite ones were the moose camp, you know? Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's like, kind of to just, just to show him the variety of activities in uh, Canada, I guess. I don't. Yeah, know. I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, and then some, uh, some like a Florida memory here, you know, Suwannee River, you know. Well, you know, I, I figured my only connection was that uh, her husband used to vacation in Florida. Oh, I see. Yeah, and, and that may be where he was. Yeah, where he picked it up. Good stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's intriguing. Okay, well, let's let's. Uh, I want to talk about uh, where all this goes is going and is already, and <laughs> um, talk a little bit more about that um, that correspondence. But I want to do. Are you are you up for a flash round? So this. I is am either... so up. I'm so. <laughs> up. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't have prepared because you know that you never know but this is these are questions from captain jim's parlor right so um and so i want you to answer as best you can without thinking right so this is where you you um you you will then later apologize and and write letters to the world breton all my writing is without thinking so (laughs) you're very good you're very instinctive this will not be hard this will not be hard good stuff all right so tell us that coffee or tea um uh tea see that's the thinking that you just did there the thinking like so was it do you have like coffee like one time a day tea another is that is that why you had i have coffee every day and i only have tea when i make it (laughs) i I make coffee every day but i'd rather have tea if someone were to make it for me so if you had a, a a a chai guru in your house right someone who's sitting there as a chai while ready to bring you tea you'd be just fine right Somebody well not who, the chai just the br- just the brown tea just, just oh tea. just normal just normal just, right? yeah Stuff. just yeah. breakfast tea yeah yeah i'd be afraid to have one of those uh those espresso makers i think i would just sit there drinking yeah. these tiny little espresso drinks just too much until i freaked out or something I think. and 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 you know tea is much easier to make than coffee i mean much less time so i don't it, know why 
I do it that way. Oh, uh, there's, there's a kind of ritual to making the coffee, right? However, yeah. however you make it, there's a kind of a thing that's, a, of course, I, I lived in Japan. They had a little bit of ritual around tea too, right? So we, right. we just, we have less of it here than I think um, some, some cultures do. So uh, raspberry cordial or red currant wine? Wine. October's or June's? October. Okay. So think about, so imagine like your listeners are listening kind of on their iPod in the car or at their desk eating lunch okay. uh, or on a walk. Okay. So what would cause them to pull the car over, uh, leave their desks or their offices and friends? So what book would you tell listeners to drop everything and go and read turn the dinner off the stove <laughs> you know <laughs> the one uh, book that they should they should read right now uh, oh because you're asking me what book makes me drop everything to go read oh intriguing yeah <clears throat> yeah mm. uh I can't, I can't pick that one. Wow. <laughs> I can't pick that one. Um, I'm, I have a, I'm, I've just got a book carousel going on in my head right now. Um, <laughs> so it's a whole bunch of them, right? Is yeah. there one that you're sort of tempted by? Like you, you find yourself going to the shelf and then you're like, I intend to read something new, but then you end up picking up something you read just two or three years ago. Does that happen? You know, I don't reread. You don't reread. I don't reread, re except for Montgomery stuff. I have to reread it all the time. Yeah. Um, but I don't. I don't want to spoil my first experience. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. What I, about childhood stuff? Like, do you ever do you ever come back to something that you read as a child and then you want to re-experience it as an adult? Um, I did with um, some of The Hobbit and some of The Lord of the Rings, which... I enjoyed and um, but like the Harry Potter, I read the Harry Potter books through with my daughter. She was yeah. the perfect age. She came perfect. came of age with Harry Potter. So I read them and loved them, but I wouldn't go back. OK, well, that's a good, good organizational principle you had there to have your child yeah. in the order of the books like to have. Right. Yeah, that's she a good. Grew, she grew up, you know, she was 12 to 20 or something, you know, yeah. when that came out, so. Yeah, no, and I always wonder kind of, um, I was, I watched that. I was a teacher of kids those that at the yeah. age and watched them grow with the books. And I thought that was kind of organic. I always wondered about like what it would be like to have been, you know, when Narnia was coming out to be eight, nine, ten, and, and, and have right. it tumble right. one after the other yeah. uh, or something like that. And sometimes we don't know what those books and authors are until several years later, right? And then we discover there was a classic sitting right. in a bookstore. Yeah. Alone. Yeah. yeah, intriguing. Okay, we'll choose one of these. Okay. Uh, a day at the beach, a walk in the woods, or an afternoon in the archive? Beach. Okay, good. And you're speaking as an archivist, so I just want to point yes. that to, <laughs> to our listeners. I don't live at the beach, so I would... So yeah. you're drawn by the beach. It's a little yeah. chilly, you should know, today, but... It doesn't matter. I love water. I love running, moving water, so... Yeah, well, it's ice. We have seals that are... Uh, sure. Uh, migrating into shores for I don't know maybe because the ice is a bit thin so that's yeah. what we're dealing with here we got uh -huh. seals being arrested by police officers here in Prince Edward Island <laughs> this, this week so <clears throat> okay now this is a hard one if you were to pop into any one hour of Montgomery's life 
which hour would you choose? Oh. Well, I would pop in to the last hour of her life. Hmm. And so I would know what yeah. to say to people when they try to create some kind of narrative for the end of her life. Yeah. I'm, I'm admittedly a, I know, I know where the evidence seems the point, but I'm admittedly just a, I'm still, um, I still live agnostically about what that, what that last day was. And I, do, I, I say that because there's so much focus on that, that part of her life and a lot of the things leading up to this sad um, decline. Yeah. And I'm from the school of, you know, sort of happy thought because I focus on her friendships and I, um, and I acknowledge all of all of those bad things and uh, sad things and traumatic things in the last years of her life. And uh, but my focus is on the positive stuff. Um, yeah. So maybe the last I would the last hour I would yeah. would um, I you know I I am a uh, believer in peaceful transitions and would hope that was would have been the case for her. Mm. and not not what we generally kind of have in our minds yeah i mean whatever happened it was a hard it was a hard ending yeah the last yeah. few days the last few weeks so it's definitely not the ending her fans wish for her no we we wish for a totally different um resolution in her life so mm. um yeah but she did kind of want to give a gift to her readers of a life a resu a, a life that resolves unlike jazz right she yeah, yeah. i think she said that she wanted to keep the darkness out of her books and to right. give the, the storybook endings to to life right is that is that how you read some of the things that you uh, fiction? yeah and i think you know as much as she said oh i hate to go back to Anne, i hate to write this book i just did it because they made me um no i think it was a retreat for her it was even if her life had been, you know, good or happy, it, I think writing was a joyful space for her, for the, I think for the most, for the most part, um, yeah. she could, you know, she could remove herself from whatever circumstance she was experiencing and, um, kind of like we do as readers put herself in the world of Anne or the world of, you know, Jane or, you know, whatever. So, Mm. Um, yeah, it, uh, she, she did, uh, leave, she did want us to be happy with her writing and, and uh, like it. And she certainly succeeded because here we are over a mm. hundred years, <laughs> hundred years, years later. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, each year over this decade, we look at what is almost a new kind of book from her, right? Uh, right. Not, not quite right. every year, but she's, she spends the twenties with such different, if you consider some of the serials, some quite different ways of speaking into the world. And yeah, no, you're right. I think and I, the writing was hard work for her. Like she was exhausted right. by it, but I think also yeah. refreshed by it. Is that right? Yeah, I, you know, some of the time she had multiple motivations. Of course, she mm -hmm. wanted she wanted to write. She loved the 
product when she was done, really. I mean, as much as she said, oh, uh, this was a terrible book. You're not going <laughs> to like it. You know, it it was, uh, that's not the case. You know, she yeah. liked her books. She, she wrote, you know, Jane the Lantern Hill, she said, I wrote it because I loved it. Yeah, no, and actually it's it's a, I think it's one of the, I mean, I don't think, no, that it's the best in my mind, but it's a high point for me Yeah. Um, yeah. as a reader. I think it's a strong, uh, I think it's a strong, it's to me, it's kind of the finishing book. I know it's not her finishing book, but right. for me, it's like, I like to end it there because yes. um, although yeah. the, the, the Blythes are quoted is a, a complex experiment. Right. Uh, literary right. experiment right um, i you know i i uh, liked the blazer quoted and i thought it was you know her as as her last manuscript um it she really wanted to publish her poetry this is my my take on it yeah, so she right. said okay i want to publish my poetry nobody will publish it um except you know way back when back in 1916 so mm -hmm. i'm going to write a book with my poetry and i'm gonna i'm gonna tie the poetry to Anne and gilbert and then I'll stick in some short stories to make it a book. But I'll, <laughs> I'll, a book. Make, I'll make, uh, I'll have Anne and Gilbert talking about the poetry so they can't edit it out. Yes. Because they'll have to have Anne and Gilbert. In. So, of course, what happened, uh, her, her son, uh, for her, the centennial of her centennial, um, published the road to yesterday. And they, what they did is just put the stories in it. And just took, the stories, which some of them were already had. And yeah. they had to take out the poetry. And so, therefore, they had to take out Anna Gilbert and their family. That's right. So but ben, it does, ben did it. Ben, ben did it. Well, and I think, yeah, no, Ben, that was like a long period of work too. And, but as we talk about the poetry, I think Ben Lefebvre's uh, songs, the songs yeah. book. Right, that, right. If there had been an editor like him who could sculpt a narrative sure. of the poems, I think that, but I think the, pro, the problem is, I think, you know, by the time we have the, T.S. Eliot world of poetry erupting. I don't know that there's really much space for her poetry, yeah. you know, as it is, right? Like I, so I think that that had to be done by 25, like, you know, you know, by, by the wasteland, by the time the wasteland became a global hit, it had, we had to have had that volume out because the, the, the moment moves on. Right. Right. So, right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Intriguing. I, I'd like to know more about that. Yeah. So, okay, good. Um, well, let's, Let's uh, well. Let me ask kind of one more question. And I'm uh, given your hesitancy with a book corral running in your head. I, I, <laughs> I, I have hesitancy because you have a book corral in your head, but that's that's good. What for you like was one of the more thinking about your work as a historian, and this could be fiction or nonfiction. What was what really one of the more influential books that you've read in in that 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 helps you think as a historian and that could be one of your um murder mysteries or <laughs> reviews of books or something but so this is there a book that kind of for, for you uh brought you into it or helped you do the work that you do or something like that you know i hadn't um read anything uh in the way of say biography um that did that for me way back in 1994 because that's when I got this idea about Montgomery but um I do I've always liked uh trying to tie interdisciplinary things together to make sense um uh, uh, one of the one of the books that I loved were uh Rachel Carson's letters oh yeah uh, sure to her friend um can't remember but this is Rachel Carson the 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 
you know, the writer, uh, the Silent Springs yeah. writer. Uh, Silent writer. Spring. Right, yeah. right. She had quite a, quite a strong literary voice. She did. And she had a best friend. She had a best friend who she spent her summers, their cottages were near each other and uh, a huge book of letters, but really, um, really powerful, you know, and it's um, a great, it's a great biography reading the letters. Um, but I had read that, but I read that after 1994. Um, but the Montgomery book that really kind of helped start me, I think, was Molly Gillen's biography. Oh, yeah. And, uh, because she used, uh, she tracked down the Macmillan letters, and then she used those to write The Wheel of Things, which holds up, you know, it, before any of the journals you know were around um or were published or edited um molly gillen put together that she's a australian um historian and put together this fabulous biography that was very enlightening hmm. based yeah, I ha- pretty much just on the letters i just had that open actually this morning just briefly so it's funny that you mentioned it um <laughs> just the the funny connection there yeah no okay i think that's a good like that's a good way of putting it i i i've kind of liked each of the biographies that i've read of montgomery me too um and i understand that i'm getting some of the same even some of the same interpretation of the narrative but the voices have been kind of interesting and unique and then of course the more critical uh mary rubio uh right the right. gift of wings this long much longer more detailed we got things that we we didn't see anywhere else right. so yeah and comes out of the years with the journals too so and oral oral history as well uh, right. the locals right. in ontario and things like that yeah no i i've appreciated them um so far and i'm curious about what's kind of coming whether there'll be a new voice or someone will attempt another critical biography or something so I'm, i'd be curious um, you can't do everything. Ben LaFave can't do everything. So I'll be curious <laughs> to see uh, what's, um, and you both are do resource people. You do bits of things, right, right. that help contribute. Right. Oh. Well, a lot of my work, I am hoping, is sort of a jumping off point for scholars uh, to bring up, you know, something that they might might use and, and explore yeah. further. My book, the book dedications ended up being kind of a biographical um, study because I'm doing them in order, you know, in order of um, publication. So uh, it it uh, ends up being, you know, and, and what I did is just tried to take parts, uh, information from the journals, information I got from family members that I interviewed um, from these people in the book dedications and try to tie together, make a timeline because in the journals, she's got people she mentions every which way, you know, they're not in order. She, re- she reflects back. So I'm trying to put that all kind of in order, like especially like um, Frederica Campbell, yes, who was everywhere. I I actually thought, you know, who knows who knew her, who knew her, because um, mm-hmm. that's a big part of Montgomery's biography is that friendship. And I uh, contacted uh, Amy Campbell, who uh, was the only person in when I talked to her in the year 2000, the only person who knew Fred living in my lifetime <laughs> who knew yeah. Fred. I said, what do you remember of her? She said, well, everybody asked me about Aunt Maud, but um, nobody's ever asked me about uh, Aunt Fred. Oh, wow. And uh, she was only eight, but um, at that, uh, about the time that uh, Fred died, but she gave me a few things because she um, lived with, you know, yeah. 
Amy lived at the Campbell farm and, and uh, so when I look at the biography, when I look at biography of Montgomery, um, I'm going to look at it through the lens of friendship. Mary had a psycho medical yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, view and, uh, and Molly Gillen had a, you know, whatever was in the letters events, you know, um, uh, view and, um, you know, and also, um, tying together what she wrote in her letters to trying to bring all that together. And it's, um, very, there's a lot, and I'm grateful that there's a lot because you've got scrapbooks and you've got, you've got her work, her scrapbooks, her photography, um, what she read, the magazine she read, the periodicals, you know, I mean, there's so much to look at her, so many lenses to view her life. I'm glad you said it in a positive way, Beth, because I sometimes mourn what we don't have. Like, I think any literary figure of her merits in 1935, say, yeah, or 40, someone would have come along, got got her papers ready. You know, she's 60, 65. Right. Or like, this is time to kind of, you know, anyone of, of merit would already have um, all, if it wasn't for the particular age and the fact she was dismissed kind right. of literarily. Um, right. You know, the PEI historical connection is there, but for the most part, she's set aside like the, like her correspondence should have been collected fairly quickly after her, after her passing, like yeah. her, her books should have been that she owned, like just of anything right. Those right. should have been catalogs and, and put somewhere. And so all that stuff that would happen with a literary figure of the period didn't happen. Yeah. 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 And so I do sometimes mourn that loss, but then you do point out how much particularly self-presentation that there is left of hers. Right. Right. As well as these these gold pieces like the Macmillan correspondence you've been working on. Yeah. Yep. So tell me um, what's you know, we've been thinking about how um, how we imagine Montgomery in our world and how she presents herself. Right. And, and you've done work on kinship. Lots of people have done great work on space. What's the what does why was literary friendship? And I think that's what these letters are, is literary friendship. What is literary? Why is that so important to Montgomery's life? Well, well, my, you know, of course, my study has not been her literary friendships, but her personal (laughs) friendship. But Macmillan kind of fell into several categories because um, uh, he he started, but he started out more as, you know, here's another writer. I'm going to correspond with another writer. I'm going to encourage him because I'm the more experienced writer. We're going to share what we write. We're going to share what we read. Um, and so they had that common basis and they had um, they had kind of a common background. I mean, he lost his father when he was young. Mm. They, the family struggled. Um, I think they did. I think there was a big disparity between her income and his, <laughs> you know, which I don't think that she maybe uh, acknowledged or recognized, but it didn't matter. Hmm. Um, because they had this literary basis of um, things that they read. They loved making each other laugh. That was the other thing. The thing hmm. they they shared funny things to yeah. read. You know, he sent her stacks of magazines and periodicals and clippings. And, um, and uh, she really enjoyed him. He was entertaining. Um, and I think what may have started out as more of a literary friendship um 
became very personal. You know, she started to acknowledge that in the 30s, saying how much his friendship had meant to her. Uh, and I mean, they had met in person. They'd spent about <clears throat> maybe a couple weeks together on her honeymoon. Yes, that's right. Um, and so they knew, you know, he had, they had met in person and he didn't disappoint her. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. He didn't disappoint her. Uh, and, uh, but she said, you know, we didn't even, we didn't even need to have met in person. I think we were destined to be friends. Mm. And that, and your friendship has meant a lot to me. I mean, she was able in her in the 1930s to start saying that to him, um, which she tried to keep it sort of impersonal before. But after all those years, uh, she said, you know, this has been great. And I, it's meant a lot. And you've um, helped me in some bad times. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of stories and writing advice, writing talk, uh, seed catalogs, I guess, in their own way, like, <laughs> you know, there's, there's all of that, but you're right. There is that um, there's a maturity that comes in and maybe to a culture change in the way that people could speak to one another about friendship, which right, right. And I think Montgomery is one of the authors that have recovered in literature, friendship as a value. Right in its own right. There's friendship is a love that is valued in Montgomery's books. Right? Exactly. It, that that's and that, you know, that grabbed me first too. I mean, I wanted I wanted to prove that she wrote very well about friendship because she knew it. You know? Yeah. She didn't yeah. she didn't wish for it. She she knew it. And she had had lots of friends along the way and um and they were meaningful to her and she was able to capture that um warmth and intimacy in her in her books and people respond to that um yeah i when I, I i post on our literary society social media um quotes with pretty pictures <laughs> to put go along with the montgomery quotes and people uh really respond to those uh quotes uh but i did have an interesting response from somebody who said you know i first came to um uh, I first came to Montgomery for the romance, for the friendship and the ro romance when I was young, but I returned for the nature. And uh, I do tend to post uh, quotes about weather <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. and, and seasons a lot because there's yeah. lots of good art out there for that. But um, yeah, the two things, the two things that uh, the readers seem to respond to on the social media things that I post on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook is the friendship, especially now because they're craving seeing their friends again, mm -hmm. uh, friendship and uh, her uh, ability to um, describe nature in ways that grab readers. So I think, you know, those, those two things are what um, I think uh, we, as adult readers, maybe start to um, gravitate toward. Good stuff. Yeah, excellent. Okay, well, I, I appreciate that. Let's close this up. And I want to close up by kind of uh, making sure that people have a sense of what's coming out from you. Uh, so tell us about these uh, these two Montgomery projects that you have and um, kind of what people can look for in them. Well, uh, I'm trying to find a publisher for all the letters. Um, this is the Macmillan correspondent? I have it done. I have. I have. Um, I've written an introduction. Betsy's written a foreword. Uh, Jenny Litzter's written uh, an essay. 
for it. I've annotated the letters, okay. um, but it's huge. So yeah. this would be a big project for somebody to um, print up. <laughs> so I'm still still looking to see who might want to take that on. Um, mm -hmm. I have to say that the letters themselves with the postcards are about 170,000 words. Oh, so, yeah. So that's 500. So 50 pages or thereabouts. Huh? Yeah. And yeah. then, and then there's my stuff, which we can maybe pare down to two, two paragraphs and then. <laughs> <laughs> but still, it's going to be a 600. Under 600. 600 page book. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is the same size as uh, the gift of wings, but um, yeah. whether anybody wants to take on a little known author or editor and, uh, and, such a massive uh book but i i think people want to read it it's it's kind of it's yeah. kind of like reading a biography but um um kind of happy oh it is i i have i have a uh, i probably have 18 or 20 letter collections uh, i have you know the c.s lewis letters and and there's probably only about a third but those were collected fairly quickly that's 3800 letters in three volumes Whew. Uh, but the third volume's too big, so they can't put it in soft cover. So it's really hard to find, very expensive. But ah. the digital version's pretty cheap. So, yeah. And they're very, uh, um, there's a few few of the pictures and sketches. There's a hand, occasional photocopy, but generally it's just the letters with some uh, per, uh, very minimal annotation, uh, enough to get you the people and the places and things like that. So that's well done. And I, I love that. I love these letter collections that I have on my uh, shelf. I didn't know about the Rachel Carson one, though. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a big one. Well, and then there's Mark Twain's letters. Yes, of course. Yeah, he's brilliant. I use that to... Uh, I think I use it for a TV stand. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've got, uh, I've got uh, uh, Scott Fitzgerald. Um, uh, we could use him to stop a bullet if needed. So the, the so that whole gang, of course. And so then, um, so we're looking hopefully in the future for the Macmillan letters to come out in right. a single volume or two volume or right. something. That's something where we can hold them, we can work with them. Right. Your biographers and scholars will have that as a resource. And then, but for now, of course, there is uh, the two pieces that you have on the Journal of um, right. Memory right. Studies website as well. And so. I would and I would like to polish up my manuscript on the book dedications. Um, <clears throat> Ella Montgomery's Kindred Spirits is what I call it. Um, but I don't know, what I've tried to do is uh, publish parts of it uh in the shining scroll which is what you see those articles um when you see there and that's mostly to get my timestamp on you know yes. that yes <clears throat> this information is from me at this time and yeah. i'm not ever get it published but it's in this periodical that i've got out there um but yeah i'm trying to update and polish uh polish that up i i started that in 1994 of course hmm. <clears throat> and all, all that stuff that you research, you know, that you tried really hard to get. Oh, gosh, it's here on the Internet now. It's all, all digitized. But I still have stuff that nobody else maybe has has uncovered. So, well, and it would be a single resource in and of itself. So whatever else we yeah. could go and hunt down for one piece this puts together, strings together the, the whole, and is really a way of focusing on uh, one way into Montgomery's world, right? So Yeah, well, it's, what I'm trying to do is show that her imagination was huge, but she was also a sponge, and she absorbed everything 
for her work. She used it in her work, whether it came in a letter or her, her personal experience or her friends. She she took all of that in uh, and it shows up in her books. So mm. that's one of the fun things about writing the book dedications is, that, oh, look at this. Oh, I remember this, you know. Uh, so she, you can see her, uh, actually shows some of her creative process, so. Brilliant. Good stuff. Well, thank you so much, uh, Beth, for, for joining us. Oh, here. well, thank you. Um, yeah, brilliant. Excellent. Good. And now to all you folks at home, as always, you can check out the work of the Ellen Montgomery Institute at ellenmontgomery.ca. It includes interactive features, guest blogs, news about conferences and calls for papers, the newest releases of the journal, of the Ellen Montgomery studies, which includes uh, work that we've already talked about from Beth, and links to digital resources like the beautiful online repository Kindred Spaces. Now, if you enjoyed the modcast and you'd like others to enjoy it as well, please share on social media and give us a rating. It does really help spread the news about the modcast and the Institute's work. And it also helps get the word out about this innovative research, the, the new initiatives from scholars who are doing this often simply out of the love for the material itself. I'm your host, Brenton Dickinson, and I'm here with technical director, Christy McKinney. And I thought it would be fitting to close with this quotation that's been given to us by Beth from uh, the um, Kindred Spirits magazine from years ago. And it says this. I had a certain knack for choosing friends, which I took as a matter of course, but can now see to have been a very vital endowment. Farewell. Farewell.